Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. And if you have been, if you have joined the church in our Bible reading challenge over the last several months, then you will know that this week you caught up with the sermon series. And you have already read this chapter this week, and I trust that for many of you that's true, that it's already been on your heart and in your mind, even as we come today to explore it further. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles, and you can find the passage on page 906 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along with one of those. Would you please stand now for the reading of God's Word? But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you've been attending here for any length of time recently, then you know we are winding down a preaching series in the Gospel of John. I think our pastor, Dr. Weldon, was reluctant to give this particular passage away, but I'm so glad he did, for it is a beautiful encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and I'm excited to be able to share it with you today. Last week, Dale mentioned that while each of the Gospels has a slightly different account of the events on Easter morning, when put together chronologically, rather than contradictory accounts, they give us a great timeline of what took place on that first Easter. So for our introduction, I'd like to look back on the events leading up to today's passage. Richard Phillips, in his commentary on John's gospel, gives us the combined storyline in this way. Around dawn on the first day of the week, when all was still dark, Jesus was raised from the dead, accompanied by an earthquake and the coming of angels. 
so that Pilate's guards first were in a state of dumbfounded shock and then fled the scene in terror. As dawn approached, a group of faithful women set out for the tomb in order to care for the body of Jesus and conclude the burial process, which had started but had been done hastily because of the approaching Sabbath. Seeing the stone rolled away, Mary Magdalene fled the scene to get the male disciples while the other women entered the tomb and heard the angel's news of the resurrection. Then they left quickly to go tell the other disciples. Meanwhile, summoned by Mary, John and Peter raced to the open tomb, likely leaving Mary trailing them in their dust. John gets there first, but he doesn't go in. Peter arrives and blows right by John, going to see into the grave. Then they see the clothes left behind and neatly folded. And then they leave and return to their homes, apparently not encountering the angels as the women did. Well, Mary catches up after the men had left and is now at the tomb all alone, completely depleted, and remarkably, after the events of the last several days, still has some tears to shed. As this true story continues to unfold, we now arrive at what many commentators say is the most beautiful and poignant encounter with Jesus recorded for us in the Bible. Can you even begin to imagine I mean, this account is what epic adventure movies are made of today, right? Heart-pounding drama, natural disaster, encountering otherworldly beings, immense fear in a graveyard, intrigue and mystery, terrorized military soldiers, a disappearing body of an executed convict, people running to and from the scene, and then here at the high point, the drama comes to a screeching halt, and we have a tender encounter between dear friends between a broken woman and the man she most respected and loved in the whole world, her teacher and friend. Mary Magdalene demonstrated boldness in her love for Jesus. The Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear. She and the other women came at the earliest possible moment to perform an act of love by caring for his dead body. They were up before dawn, and for all they knew, they were going to have to face down Roman soldiers to gain access to Jesus' body. They had no idea how they were going to move that large stone that covered the entrance. But none of this deterred these fearless women. Have you ever seen a woman in action when she's advocating for a loved one at a hospital nurse's station? in a courtroom, or at a school office. In particular, if she believes an injustice is taking place, step aside. <laughs> you do not want to get between a mother bear and the object of her affection. God seems to have equipped women with the ability to set aside fear and anxiety in certain circumstances, enabling them to rise to the occasion heroic action. Even in the account before us, John doesn't paint a pretty picture of himself and Peter. After all, where were they? 
They didn't come with the women initially, and when they finally did go, it was just John and Peter. And they, brave souls that they were, didn't stick around to investigate, but returned to their homes. Mary, however, returns a second time. And after everyone else has left, she stays there, alone. There must have been immense fear in her heart. And as if what Mary had witnessed the last several days hadn't been enough stress, the mock trials, the beatings, the humiliation, spitting on him, slapping him in the face, the crown of thorns and the reed placed in his hand, mocking him as a king, the shouts of crucify him, the rejection of his own people, the denial of Peter, the running away of his closest friends, the wagging of heads and pointing of fingers by his detractors the insults hurled at him, and finally one of the most grotesque, painful, and torturous forms of execution ever conceived of in the sin-sick mind of man, crucifixion. Crucifixion of an innocent man. And now, now someone had the temerity to steal his body so that those who loved him most couldn't even administer proper burial? Hadn't they taken enough from Jesus in his death? Now they couldn't even allow him to have a dignified burial? Oh, what anguish Mary must have been in. It was too much. Where was he? Who took the body and what did that mean for them? Would they be accused of stealing the body? Would she be arrested if the officials showed up while she was there by herself? She was a woman after all in a man's world. And why was she still there? Why didn't she flee in fear to the safety of her home? I think we can answer those questions with one word, love. And while this kind of love is very admirable, before we give Mary Magdalene all the credit for her love, remember that we love Jesus because he first loves us. Our love for Christ is in direct response to his love for us. Mary Magdalene of all people knew this to be true. In her brokenness, Jesus had cast out seven demons, freeing her from unimaginable mental, spiritual, and emotional, perhaps even physical anguish. Then he brought her into his circle of dear friends and showed her the way to true life and abundance in him. But like the rest, she didn't believe Jesus was alive. She doubted the resurrected Christ she was looking for a dead body, not a living Lord. But that doubt and lack of belief didn't change her love for Jesus. After arriving back at the tomb, her determination persisted. She was not easily deterred. Think of the boldness in asking who she thought was the gardener, a man, why he moved the body of Jesus. Would he not have taken that personally? It was his garden to care for. A body snatching under his watch would not have been a good thing. Mary had many, many questions for which she had no answers. And in these questions, she was doubting the resurrected Jesus. This is the first point of your outline. Doubting the resurrected Jesus. Back in verse 11, we read, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. How about you? Do you doubt the resurrected Christ? And I'm not limiting that question to those of you who maybe don't believe objectively that the resurrection happened. Some of you may still find yourselves in that position. But I'm also speaking to you who affirm in faith the biblical account and the historic Christian faith in the resurrection. Do you, Christian, find yourself doubting the resurrected Christ? Do you doubt that his presence with you today, right now in this moment, is just as real and just as significant as when he stood behind Mary? Quoting Phillips again, he says, presenting a living image of the Ark of the Covenant, the angels were perched on either side of the slab where Jesus' body had lain as the true sacrifice for sin. Sitting one at the head and one at the feet, Gerhardus Voss comments, placed like cherubim on the mercy seat, they covered between themselves the spot where the Lord had reposed and flooded it with celestial glory. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the mercy seat. Do you doubt, as we sang earlier, that he lives right now in your current circumstance to bless you with his love? Do you doubt that right now he is speaking to the Father about you, pleading for you, showing the Father the nail prints in his hands? Doubt and grief had overwhelmed Mary so that she couldn't see straight with her heart's eyes. How ironic that she was positioned to see the body's prison of death, the tomb, and 180 degrees in the opposite direction stood the one who had just broken free from that prison, crushing death to death once for all in triumphant resurrection. You know what Mary was looking for? The body of Jesus? It wasn't missing. It was right behind her. But she was too preoccupied with the broken things of the world to understand that the healer of brokenness was right there. In her doubt and fear, she was drawn to the place of death, the tomb, while the resurrected Jesus was standing right there in the place of life, a garden. It leads us into, right into the next point of your outline facing the resurrected Jesus. In verse 14, we continue reading, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Mary did turn from the tomb of death to the resurrected Jesus. Something compelled her to do it, but she still hadn't been given the eyes of faith. Wrapped in brokenness and anguish, she could not see him for who he was. Seems a little puzzling, doesn't it, that there he was right in front of her, her dear friend, 
but she couldn't see him. It's not really that odd. After all, she wasn't looking for the risen, glorified Son of God. She was looking for the body of a friend who died. Why would we expect her to see him? She couldn't possibly. What about you? What are you looking for? Do you see clearly with the eyes of faith, or is your vision clouded with sin, guilt, and fear? What are you looking to to find the answers to your questions? Are you looking to the prison of death, to the world and its alluring ways, or are you looking only to the resurrected Christ to wipe away the doubt and fear from your eyelids? Can you relate to Mary at all? I can. Does this describe you at all? Perhaps you're in the tomb among the dead and the Savior hasn't called you to new life yet. Or maybe like Mary, you know Jesus, but you're too preoccupied with the former things of death that you can't see the resurrected Christ in his glory. Turn from death and sin, from fear and unbelief. Turn to the risen Christ and listen as he speaks your name and as he gives you the gift of faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And this goes right into the next point, believing the resurrected Jesus. In verse 16, we read, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary did not believe even though Jesus had told them he would rise from the dead. She came to the tomb fully expecting to find his lifeless body there. She was prepared to care for that body. When arriving and finding the tomb empty, she still believed he was dead. And when questioned by two angels who were seated in the place of Jesus' body, she still did not believe. Even when Jesus himself spoke to her initially, she did not see that it was him. Have you ever wondered why Mary didn't run away in shame when she finally realized her mistake? Not only did she not run, but when Jesus uttered her name, something wonderful happened. A switch was flipped. A light bulb went off. Her eyes were opened, and she saw Jesus. What a beautiful picture of the gospel we have here. When Jesus calls us to himself by name, we are called by an irresistible grace. Using the illustration of a good shepherd earlier in John chapter 10, Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Can you see the scene that Jesus painted for us there? This is not a chaotic moment. 
Sheep wandering all over the place aimlessly, bumping into themselves, bleeding loudly, while the shepherd hollers their names, hoping they'll have the good sense to make the right decision and follow him instead of wandering off a cliff somewhere? No. When the good shepherd pursues you and calls you by name out of darkness into light, out of death into life, and out of sin into holiness, it is a compelling call an irresistible grace, as our doctrine calls it. His voice arrests the soul of the unbeliever, removing a stone-cold heart of unbelief and replacing it with a warm, beating heart of faith. And it is in that moment, even like Mary, that we see him for who he is and follow. Not because we made a smart decision, but because he called us. And Jesus said that as secure and sure as the relationship of Jesus with his father is, so too is our relationship with the good shepherd. In the times of life, when like Mary, your eyelids are flooded with the tears of deep heartache, our wonderful Lord is positioning himself and you that you might hear him whisper your name once more and face him alone. And in that call, those tears of grief, while no less profuse and wet, turn into tears of excruciating joy. When the resurrected Jesus stands before you and whispers your name, he tears down the encroaching walls of doubt and fear, commands the release of your soul from the dungeon of despair, and stills the emotional tsunami of your heart. In that moment of transparency and unobstructed love, you know very well who he is and what he has done for you. called by an irresistible grace you cannot help but latch on for dear life to the lover of your soul. The emotional shift here was dramatic. Mary saw Jesus die. She helped bury the body. Jesus was really dead. And now, now he speaks her name standing in front of her, resurrected to new life. Everything had changed in that moment. Everything. I love that Mary's response was no more and no less than Jesus' call. She simply cried out, Rabboni, or teacher. This form of the Aramaic word rabbi is used only twice in the New Testament. The other time was by blind Bartimaeus when he cried out to Jesus for healing when he was in the streets. This form of the word is the most honorable of the forms and was reserved for a select few rabbis in the Jewish culture. It was the highest honor Mary could give Jesus in her addressing him. Following her recognition, 
Mary apparently gave him a tight embrace. Whether around his feet or around his neck, we do not know. But that embrace communicated, I'm never letting go of you and you are never leaving my sight. For in the next breath, Jesus had to tell her, do not cling to me. Some have speculated that Jesus was making a statement here about his glorified body, that somehow it shouldn't be touched by humans anymore. But this doesn't fit with what Jesus would shortly say to Thomas when he invited him to touch his wounds for the physical proof of resurrection that Thomas demanded. A much simpler explanation is likely. Mary had just gotten Jesus back and wasn't ready to say goodbye again. Jesus assures her that the time for his ascension was some time off yet and that there was work for Mary and the other disciples to do in the interim. He was assuring her that this wasn't goodbye. She would see him in the flesh again. We can all relate to this, can't we? You know, one of my favorite things in life is to go on an extended trip without Sharon. <laughs> wait, wait, I'm not done. And then upon my return, to receive that embrace and smile, and you know what I'm talking about. There's nothing like that. I'll often tell her, I need to go on more trips. <laughs> There's something about that reunion. We've all seen the military families on television that are reunited in that same way. We can identify with this. These are the times when the I'm never letting you go again kind of embrace happens. And this is very likely what is happening here in this passage. But Jesus doesn't call our name and save us to a life of communing with him in solitude. No, the work is not over. For we, just as Mary, are called to proclaim the resurrected Jesus, which is the next point in the outline. Proclaiming the resurrected Jesus. In our final verse of 18, we read, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. In the end, this story isn't primarily about Mary. It's about Mary's Savior, Jesus. Do you suppose this statement of Mary's, I have seen the Lord, was timid and unobtrusive? We can't say for sure, but based upon the backstory that we've read so far and what has taken place, it sure wouldn't make much sense, would it? My mind's eye sees a joy-filled woman, still crying perhaps, but for a different reason, breathlessly shouting after almost breaking down the door, I have seen the Lord. I suppose we won't really know until we meet her one day. But we do know she responded in obedience to her master, telling the good news to those who would hear her. And what was the message she had for the disciples from the Lord? Tell my brothers I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. This statement has great implications for the disciples and us. 
It signifies a change in relationship with Jesus, shifting from a student-teacher relationship to that of children of God and siblings with Jesus. This change is only possible because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. For when Jesus went to the cross and died for us, completing the work of salvation, rising from the dead to newness of life, he proved and provided this magnificent gift, this change in relationship, the uniqueness of the relationship of God the Father with his Son is now granted to God's people. Jesus declared to Mary that a father-son relational status had just been established between God and his people. Paul gives us further explanation of this truth and doctrine in Romans chapter eight. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Mary did indeed have good news to share. All of us who are in Christ have been adopted and can cry out, Abba, Father, just as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane a few days before. Folks, this is the good news that our world needs so desperately. And not only that, it is the good news that we need to be reminded of over and over again. For many have an idea of a God that is not who God is at all. Some distant, unrelating God who doesn't care about humanity and is unattainable. Does your and my witness bear out a Jesus who is present? A Jesus who is our best friend? A Jesus who knows us better than anyone else in the world? A Jesus who walks beside us every moment of every day? A Jesus who invites us to his banquet table to feast upon him and his word in faith? A Jesus who speaks to us every day through the words of life and who hears the constant whisper of our voice in response to those words? Do our lives manifest the proverbial, I have seen the Lord, to all who know us? Jesus' first action out of the tomb, which we know about, is that of a good shepherd seeking a single, broken, lost sheep. Jesus didn't go to the religious leaders to say, see, I told you so. He didn't go to Pilate's court to defend his innocence, and he didn't even reprimand his disciples for their unbelief. No, Jesus did what he always does and is still doing today. He found a broken Mary who in her despair was looking for all the wrong things, and like a tender shepherd, he called her to himself and gave her a purpose. Where are you today? Do you know the good shepherd's voice? Do you have a purpose? Has he called you out of darkness and into light? If not, then call out to him today. Turn from sin and death and turn to Jesus. Believe that he is risen and that he alone can save you. Are you one of his sheep already? Are you looking at him and hearing his voice or are you looking to the ways of the tomb 
for comfort and happiness. Turn from those dead idols and hear his voice once more. Face the resurrected in Jesus and find in him your all in all. What about us as a church, St. Andrews? Seeing the resurrected Jesus changed Mary forever. Soon, Jesus would be with her and the other disciples all the time through the indwelling of his spirit. If you belong to Jesus, this is your reality too. Are we as a church fully pursuing the purpose to which we have been called? Or do we live our lives frozen in fear, waiting for the next proverbial shoe to drop in disbelief of the one we see standing before us? Are we intimidated by the surrounding culture, too reticent to proclaim this good news to our dying world? If there was ever a time for us to take our collective and individual, I have seen the Lord, testimonies to a culture in desperate need of a savior, it's now. We've been entrusted with the words of life, the only words that can transform our community for Jesus, and we must seize the day. May the Lord help us to devote ourselves to knowing the resurrected Jesus through worship of him, putting to flight fear and doubt. May he enable us to face the resurrected Jesus in faith that we may live our lives transparently and openly in community before one another in the watching world. May God give us believing eyes to see the resurrected Jesus in his revealed word as we devote ourselves to its study. And when he comes again to take us home, may he find us faithfully proclaiming the resurrected Jesus to a lost world using the diversity of gifts that he's equipped us to do that to that end. St. Andrews, as we leave this place, let us reaffirm our commitment as a church to proclaim to our friends, our families, our community, and the world with all of the resources and gifts at our disposal that indeed we have seen the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful story. A beautiful, tender account of the Good Shepherd interacting and relating to a broken sheep. Father, we acknowledge our brokenness. We understand who we are in light of who you are. And yet, we also fully understand that in Christ we are righteous. That in Christ we can come to you clothed in his garb. And that in Christ we can serve you and say with Isaiah, here am I, send me. So Lord, would you challenge us today to be Mary's, to hear your voice, to submit to your call, and to proclaim to a watching world 
I have seen the Lord. Help us in this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.